This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Management of Diabetic Ketoacidosis by Dr. Michael Agus. Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. Hi and welcome. I'll be speaking today about diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. My name is Michael Agus. I am a pediatric intensive care doctor and a pediatric endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm the director of the Medicine Critical Care Program here at Children's and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Critical Update A 2018 randomized controlled trial of fluid resuscitation in 1,389 episodes of DKA compared slow versus fast replacement of isotonic, 0.9% normal saline, versus hypotonic, 0.45% half-normal saline fluids, and did not find differences in neurologic outcomes, suggesting that a range of fluid protocols may be used to rehydrate children with DKA. However, 98% of patients in this trial had a Glasgow Coma score greater than or equal to 14. Therefore, these recommendations may not apply to the sickest patients, that is, those with a GCS score below 14. Hyperglycemia. Why does one get hyperglycemic in DKA? Why does the blood sugar go up at all? Uh, well, it's really the same reason you get hyperanything-emic uh, in any uh, sit clinical situation. It's some mismatch of increased ins and decreased outs. So what are the increased ins of glucose into the bloodstream? Uh, well, one major one is the one uh, that patients are doing at home. Uh, what are they drinking at home? In general, they're drinking uh, a Pedialyte or uh, juice uh, or some uh, dextrose-containing fluid, uh, uh, and they uh, uh, don't realize that they're driving their uh, blood sugar higher and higher. Uh, the other actor that's adding glucose to the bloodstream is the liver. Uh, the, the liver believes the blood sugar is extremely low because it can't get any glucose intracellularly because of the insulin deficiency, and so it turns on gluconeogenesis at full throttle. And of course, that's also what produces the ketoacidosis, uh, the lipolysis, freeing up those circulating ketones, uh, free fatty acids as well. Now, where should the glucose be going? Well. Uh, with, if insulin were present, there'd be normal cellular uptake. But with uh, decreased insulin production, increased insulin resistance, uh, there is a, a, a functional severe insulin deficiency, and so there is dramatically decreased cellular uptake. Now, these three factors will give you blood sugars uh, in the mid to high 100s. Uh, what really pushes you over the edge is when you begin to decrease perfusion to the kidneys. Uh, we know that the renal threshold is about 180, and if your blood sugar is anything over 180 and you're adequately hydrated, eventually the kidney will dump all that glucose. It may get dehydrated in the process, and you'll need to replete those fluids. 
but the glucose should come down. In the setting where you begin to hypoperfuse the kidneys, that's when the glucose really shoots up. And that's when the glucose will hit the 800, 1000, 1200 uh, milligram per deciliter range. One important caveat to the construct I've uh, mentioned here is the middle-aged or adolescent patient who happens to be at home rehydrating with water. That's the one patient where the glucose may not be as elevated. The glucose may be only in the 400 range, 500. They may have quite significant uh, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, however, they are not as dehydrated as the usual patient with DKA. This is a rare patient, but it's a patient where you really want to think twice when the blood sugar is not that high to ask yourself the question, maybe the kidneys are a little bit better perfused than I'm used to, and maybe they don't need the amount of uh, uh, fluid that I'm about to, to give. Uh, but for most patients, they come to the emergency department, they have a blood sugar in, say, the 1,000 range, uh, and they will uh, get their normal saline bolus, uh, usually 10 uh, milliliters per kilogram uh, over the first hour, and that will almost invariably significantly drop their blood sugar because uh, we saw on the prior slide, uh, we're now reperfusing the kidneys. The kidneys are now able to dump glucose uh, and as such, the glucose will, will begin to, to plummet. After a few hours, the uh, trajectory of that glucose uh, concentration will change. And now you're looking at uh, the effect of insulin. Uh, insulin will, have, will significantly decrease the, the glucose concentration, but it won't do so at the rate that reperfusion will. Uh, we know that if we don't do something about the glucose decrease as uh, insulin infuses, is it will go all the way down to zero. Uh, but we maintain a target range of about 150 to 250, and in many hands, the appropriate range is really 200 to 300 milligrams per deciliter. And we achieve that range by adding in dextrose to our uh, IV fluids. Uh, now, uh, one has to understand that, that the uh, range here is chosen really to make sure that glucose doesn't go severely low. Uh, a, a patient is at, in much better shape if they spend the whole night at 250 than if they spend the whole night at 120. If they spend the night at 120, they're at risk for dropping low at any moment. Uh, and if not adequately monitored, they can be at significant risk for hypoglycemic seizures. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, DKA is a problem of insulin deficiency. The cure for DKA is insulin therapy. Glucose is really an innocent bystander. It's affected by insulin therapy, but it's not part of the problem. The problem is insulin deficiency, and we need to correct that problem. Management. The normal saline bolus. Uh, in the emergency department, uh, we will generally give 10 milliliters per kilo, and, and, and that's been uh, a component of most treatment algorithms uh, throughout most of the literature. The real question is, do you give that second or third or fourth bolus? And it is extremely uncommon to need uh, much volume beyond 10 per kilo. And beyond 20 per kilo is uh, extremely rare. Now, one has to resolve and, and, and kind of uh, internally understand that unlike almost every other uh, volume bolus we give in pediatrics, the idea of the volume bolus in DKA is not to restore euvolemia. It is to restore end organ perfusion such that those end organs uh, don't suffer uh, significant injury. The amount needed to restore end organ perfusion is very small. 
the amount needed to restore euvolemia is quite significant. But if you restored euvolemia in every patient with DKA, you would be doing uh, a lot of harm. Uh, that's why we restrict uh, fluids uh, to 10 per kilo in general, 20 per kilo rarely. But I will say that in the extremely unlikely situation that someone comes in with DKA and shock, they may need 80 per kilo. So there is no correct amount of fluid to give a patient with DKA. You give the patient what they need. But again, it's not what they need to get to be euvolemic, it's what they need to avoid uh, end organ dysfunction due to ischemia. In terms of insulin therapy, uh, it's really amazing to remember that the half-life, the serum half-life of uh, IV insulin is between three and five minutes. Insulin is very quickly uh, utilized or broken down uh, in the serum. Uh, and so one achieves steady state uh, with a continuous insulin infusion, uh, at least a steady state concentration within three to four half-lives or 15, 20 minutes. Uh, so the utility of an insulin bolus was always a little bit in question. Uh, recently, however, though, uh, there was a, an interesting uh, cohort study in uh, the United Kingdom which demonstrated that any insulin given in the first hour increases the risk of significant cerebral edema quite markedly. Uh, and so we've now shifted away from giving any insulin in the first hour, uh, and we certainly don't give any boluses at this point. So uh, based on all this data, uh, we proceed by giving our uh, normal saline bolus, as I mentioned, usually 10 mLs per kilo over the first hour. And at the end of that first hour, we start the insulin infusion without a bolus, without a loading dose. We give it at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour as a continuous infusion. Fluid and electrolyte therapy. Fluid and electrolyte therapy. Uh, in terms of uh, choosing what rate of fluid to infuse, uh, it was years ago that we were encouraged to uh, look at a patient and decide uh, what percent dehydration that particular patient had. This one looks 2.7% dehydrated. This one looked 3.4% dehydrated. We began to realize, uh, based on some nice data, that a handful of expert uh, clinicians would all choose a slightly different percentage when they look at the same patient. And so we really don't have a very good ability to assess total fluid deficit just by looking at a patient. Even when we have access to patient prior weights, uh, there's certainly dehydration that, that takes place over a period of weeks, but there's also uh, muscle loss, there's lipolysis going on, and uh, some of the weight loss may not be attributable to uh, fluid loss. Uh, and may not be appropriate to uh, adjust your fluids based on that. Uh, and so there's now an international consensus statement uh, that, uh, that guides the therapy that I'll be telling you about um, and specifically refers to the rate of fluid administration and choosing a rate between one and a half and twice maintenance. In general, after getting the appropriate bolus, uh, I would start with one and a half times maintenance. From a dextrose point of view, we start with uh, no dextrose in the infusate, assuming that the uh, patient is hyperglycemic. If uh, it's the rare patient I mentioned where blood sugar is three to 400, I would put in 5% uh, dextrose into the solution. But in general, we start with none. Uh, and we ratchet up uh, from five to 10 to 12.5% being the highest concentration I would infuse peripherally. Uh, 
remember that, that going up on the dextrose should be considered a ratchet. Once you go up, there's no real reason to go back down. As I mentioned, blood sugars, three, four hundreds are okay in DKA therapy. Sure, the 150 to 250 is the ideal range, but uh, it's just not worth the expense, the hassle, the risk for uh, errors by changing the fluids more than they absolutely need to be changed. And so from a dextrose point of view, again, I'd march up from zero to D5 to D10 to D12 and a half every time a blood sugar approaches uh, 200 milligrams per deciliter. From a sodium point of view, I've mentioned to you that there are no data to suggest that sodium administration uh, makes a difference in the risk of significant cerebral edema. Uh, despite this, uh, there are uh, uh, some uh, anecdotal data which have, uh, I think, guided our practice. And the international consensus statement now states uh, that for the first four hours, we ought to have a sodium concentration in the infusate of 154 millimoles per liter. That, of course, is normal saline. And uh, we all agree that for the first four hours, we're going to stick with normal saline. At that point, however, I recommend dropping to half normal saline. Uh, if we use normal saline the entire course of therapy, every patient can end up hyperchloremic with a non-GAP acidosis. Now, a non-GAP uh, metabolic acidosis is not a dangerous acidosis, but it doesn't feel quite so good. And so those patients may be slower to convert to sub-Q insulin they may not be in a mood to get all their uh, diabetes education, and they may end up with a longer length of stay because of the hyperchloremia they've had in their initial therapy. So I try to reduce from normal saline to half normal at that four hour mark. Uh, if, the, uh, if the serum sodium is particularly low or particularly high, those are situations where I might continue the normal saline uh, for a little bit longer than just the first four hour mark. Now, from a potassium point of view, uh, we'll talk about insulin effects on potassium in a second, but uh, it is clear that patients in DKA are total body potassium depleted. Uh, and so we think of the baseline potassium concentration in uh, infusate for diabetic ketoacidosis to be about 40 milliequivalents per liter. The range of acceptable peripheral concentrations is between 20 and 80. When you get up to 80 milligrams per liter, you may be uh, in, in a very high range, and, and we'd only do that uh, if the, the serum potassium is really in the low 2 range and just not responding to the concentrations we're using. Uh, there, uh, when one is following uh, potassium, uh, one can always look at an electrocardiogram to look for the presence of U waves. Uh, but in general, uh, hypokalemia, although we uh, certainly try aggressively to avoid it, uh, is, is not uh, a lethal complication in DKA, uh, and uh, one shouldn't overreact uh, by giving potassium infusions. Uh, rather, uh, put it in the IV fluid, and uh, uh, the patient will uh, eventually equilibrate over time. Uh, in our institution, we use acetate and phosphate uh, to uh, replace uh, some of the chloride to avoid giving as much chloride as we might otherwise give. So instead of gi giving potassium chloride in the infusate, we give a combination of potassium acetate and potassium phosphate. Now potassium acetate uh, can be given in significant concentrations. Potassium phosphate, uh, one has to uh, be a little bit uh, concerned about the relative concentration of phosphate and calcium. Phosphate and calcium are acutely co-regulated, and if one infuses a lot of phosphate, 
the calcium will plummet and you can develop hypocalcemic tetany as a complication of giving too much phosphate. And so we limit the phosphate in the infusate uh, depending on size. From a calcium and magnesium point of view, we don't tend to need to replete those at all. Metabolic effects of insulin. Now let's review the main effects of insulin. Uh, we know that uh, insulin pushes intracellularly glucose. That's its main function. Uh, it also has a similar effect on potassium. Uh, and uh, we also know that the patients present total body potassium depleted due to the acidosis. In the setting of acidosis, uh, cells will uh, try to uh, help to reduce the proton concentration, and that's basically what acidosis is, right? Increased proton concentration. Uh, the cells will try to help by sucking in a few protons and exchanging them electroneutrally with intercellular potassium. As a result, the extracellular potassium will begin to rise, and when the patient is home and the patient is still well perfused, or the kidneys are still well perfused, uh, the kidneys will dump that potassium. And so by the time the patient comes into the emergency department, they have been dumping potassium all day long and our total body potassium extremely depleted. Now a similar situation happens with phosphate. Uh, phosphate can be very low uh, in uh, starving or malnourished people. Uh, some believe uh, have learned about the refeeding syndrome, meaning the risk of refeeding and, uh, and developing uh, catastrophic hypophosphatemia uh, from anorectic populations. The truth is it was first described, unfortunately, uh, in the Holocaust when uh, Allied soldiers freed concentration camps. And when they uh, saw these poor, emaciated, tortured uh, prisoners, they said, ah, you, know, you guys haven't eaten in such a long time here, have a, a little bit of a candy bar. And the prisoners would eat a little bit of candy bar and many of them would have a cardiac arrest on the spot and die. Now, why did that happen? It happens because insulin is phosphorylated at the receptor and so it, insulin uses up uh, a significant amount of free phosphate. If your free phosphate concentration is extremely low, and you give what amounts to as an insulin bolus, meaning it's insulin infusion at a significantly uh, high dose, which is what we do, uh, you can quickly use up phosphate stores if the circulating phosphate levels are extremely low, and all of a sudden you have no phosphate to make ATP from. In that situation, you will have instant death of high metabolic tissues like the heart. Uh, and that will lead, obviously, to a uh, whole organism death. Uh, it's easy to avoid uh, hypo hypophosphatemia, or at least critical hypophosphatemia, by maintaining an infusion of uh, phosphate, uh, as I mentioned, in the form of potassium phosphate, uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 milliequivalents per liter, uh, if one is infusing the total fluids at between one and a half and twice maintenance. That really is an adequate phosphate uh, uh, delivery uh, uh, in order to avoid critical hypophosphatemia. It's not going to get your pho patient's phosphate up to a normal of 4, uh, but it will keep it uh, in the uh, 0.8 to 1.2 range uh, or potentially above that, uh, and that will keep it uh, uh, high enough uh, so that one won't develop uh, the potentially lethal uh, complications of critical hypophosphatemia. Monitoring the patient. 
Now, while one is treating a patient with DKA, one has to follow frequent lab values. Uh, we recommend following a blood glucose value hourly. Uh, that can be uh, a finger stick on the, during the time periods that you're not drawing an actual blood sample for electrolytes. Uh, every two hourly, we look at electrolytes, meaning a, a chem 10, and by that we mean sodium, potassium, chloride, total CO2 or bicarbonate concentration, BUN, creatinine, glucose, calcium, phosphate, and magnesium. Uh, we usually draw this from uh, a second IV, and so we will have an infusing IV uh, with insulin, uh, and we will have a second IV where we infuse the IV fluids, uh, and uh, we will withdraw from that uh, when appropriate in order to uh, measure glucose concentration uh, and, uh, and the electrolytes. Uh, if one is drawing from uh, the line where group uh, dextrose was infusing, one has to be uh, very careful uh, to have an adequate waste, uh, at least a full uh, ml of blood, uh, in order to uh, uh, not uh, uh, contaminate the measurement uh, with a dextrose infusate. Uh, another way to uh, measure electrolytes is with a uh, venous blood gas. Uh, it's important to remember that although these are valid values, they are not directly comparable uh, to serum electrolytes. Uh, whole blood values uh, can be a few percentage points off from uh, uh, serum values. Uh, we also uh, occasionally will measure uh, some form of continuous CO2 monitoring, either entitled CO2 or transcutaneous CO2, in order to confirm uh, that the patient's uh, pCO2 concentration is rising normally. It will often start uh, in the very low teen range, even as low as uh, pCO2 of 10 millimeters of mercury. But it should rise towards the normal concentration of 40 uh, as the therapy uh, is delivered. If that rise uh, uh, is, uh, begins to be flattened or goes in the opposite direction, then something is wrong. Usually uh, there's a problem with the insulin delivery system uh, that needs to be uh, re-looked at, or occasionally uh, the insulin concentration uh, was uh, not uh, mixed properly in the pharmacy. Uh, we conduct a Glasgow Coma score every two hours in order to uh, help bedside clinicians identify a change in mental status uh, that uh, might require further evaluation and consideration for therapy. Titration of fluid therapy. Now there's two approaches to uh, uh, adjusting fluids in uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, the one that we use in our institution uh, uh, involves having a pre-made set of fluids that we keep uh, in the unit where we predominantly care for diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, there are uh, four concentrations of fluid. They're all uh, normal saline, uh, but they have uh, no dextrose, D5, D10, and D12.5, uh, along with uh, a mixture of uh, uh, 25 uh, milliequivalents per liter of uh, potassium acetate and 15 per liter of potassium phosphate. By having these four fluids pre-made and near the patient, uh, if the, uh, as the blood sugar goes down and uh, the provider wants to increase the dextrose delivery, uh, they can order that fluid and that fluid can be hung by the bedside nurse within minutes. A and uh, using this approach has nearly eradicated 
the incidence of hypoglycemia during insulin infusion. Uh, because this means that uh, the, the provider uh, will not make, uh, write the order uh, and leave the uh, unit, the nurse then uh, ends up waiting up to an hour until the pharmacy can make that fluid and increase the dextrose concentration to the patient. In the meantime, the patient's dextrose uh, glucose has been falling steadily. Uh, and so we've been able to really uh, eradicate glucose, uh, hypoglycemia with this method. The other approach that many hospitals use is a titration method, uh, where they have uh, a high concentration dextrose fluid in one bag and no dextrose in the other bag, and they change the concentration of dextrose by uh, varying the relative uh, infusion rates. This makes uh, a lot of sense to me. Uh, personally, I have not seen it in action and uh, uh, worry about uh, the uh, training required for bedside nursing uh, and how the orders uh, would need to match in our current situation of computerized order entry. In addition to ordering uh, the pre-made fluid, uh, we also uh, ask the resident uh, or the provider to order uh, the fluid that they really want if it's different than the stored fluid. Maybe they really want uh, D5, for example, with 12 of KFOS and 19 of castate. That's fine, but in the meantime, they'll get the pre-made uh, D5 and then 45 minutes, an hour later, uh, they'll get the, far, the fluid that they really wanted from pharmacy. Now, what do we do to maintain new glycemia? Uh, I mentioned earlier that we uh, increase the dextrose in steps, and I consider it a ratchet. So we go up, we don't go back down. There's just no reason to go back down. We start with no dextrose, go to D5, D10, D12 and a half. Once we hit D12 and a half, then, and the blood sugar is still in the uh, uh, mid to low 100 range, as in less than uh, 150, then we need to go up on the rate of IV fluid. And so we would go up from one and a half to twice maintenance. Now, virtually all patients, the great majority of patients, will finish their course of therapy on D12 and a half at twice maintenance. If you're on D12 and a half, if your patient is on D12 and a half at twice maintenance, and the blood sugar is still going down to the low 100s, then and only then, you may need to think about reducing the insulin infusion rate. Uh, personally, I, I don't advocate in, uh, decreasing the insulin infusion rate in, in, in almost any circumstance because I think that it can introduce error into the system. Uh, and if a nurse or a provider that's relatively inexperienced uh, believes that insulin is one of those things they can titrate along with the dextrose and the fluid rate and all the electrolytes, uh, then the patient may end up not getting the adequate dose of insulin they need. Now, what is the adequate dose? I've told you that I recommend 0.1 unit per kilo per hour. Is that definitive? Is that, is that what's required? No, it's not. In fact, there have been some data to suggest that a lower dose may be adequate in, in many, many patients. But I can tell you that 0.1 unit per kilo per hour is adequate in all patients. And we've never had a, a case, despite seeing uh, having seen hundreds and hundreds of patients with DKA where that dose was inadequate. And so I uh, uh, fall back on uh, using an adequate dose for everybody uh, and supporting it with dextrose and with the appropriate IV fluid rate in order to maintain euglycemia and resolve uh, the diabetic ketoacidosis. 0.1 units per kilo per hour is a massive dose. It's 2.4 units per kilo per day. The usual diabetic will be on, uh, once they, they finish their honeymoon period and they've settled into their diabetes, 
they'll be on about one unit per kilo per day. So this is two and a half times uh, the usual maximum dose for a patient with diabetes. But the idea is when they come in, they have a lot of insulin resistance. And as that insulin resistance goes away, the insulin effect goes up and up, even though the dose is the same. And that's why we need to increase the dextrose supply. We need to increase uh, the fluid supply uh, as the patient uh, moves along. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.